All of God's people said amen. amen. We're so glad to see you this morning, and we want to uh, wish you a Merry Christmas in this great season that we're celebrating. This is number four in the series that we're doing called The Story. Um, I'm excited today to really not teach. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell a story. I'm hoping to weave this thing together from a very large panoramic, sort of a cosmic view of God's intention from before the foundation of the world. And so I'd ask if you would please to stand with me one more time. Uh, please remember next Sunday will only be one service. It'll be at 10 a.m. And uh, we know that a lot of folks will be traveling for Christmas and seeing loved ones. And we pray traveling mercies and safety on you to, to come back and be able to start the year fresh with us again in 2015. I'm expecting amazing things. Anybody else in the house? Come on. All right. This, uh, the text is found on, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 through 14. So we have just a few verses that we want to grab together this evening. So find a screen where it's comfortable for you to read. I'm going to go with the back one this morning. Uh, and let's read together. Here we go. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Bow your hearts with me together this morning for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the good news. The good news that has been announced by angels and prophets and apostles and believers and disciples. The good news that is the gospel proclamation that Jesus Christ has come and He is now the King of the whole universe. Thank you that the King is here. The Prince of Peace has come. Lord, help us today to not be so enamored with the babe in the manger that we lose sight of the Son who hung on the cross, who was buried in the grave, who descended and took the keys from the jailer, the keys of death and hell and the grave. And He ascended and He was resurrected. We thank You for this whole amazing story of which You have written our names into the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to celebrate that together this morning, for the peace of God that's in this place, that is here, that is present, because Jesus is present. I just acknowledge before you and every person under the sound of my voice now that I, I'm desperately in need for you to, to move and speak through my heart. Speak, O oh God, through my voice. Let the voice within my voice be heard by hungry hearts and listening ears. You give us, O oh Lord, hearing ears and seeing eyes, is what the proverb says. The Lord hath made them both. We'll be careful to give you all the praise in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. As I meditated and considered how I was going to bring the Christmas story this year, you know, when, when you do this a number of times, over and over and over and over and over, you start to get to kind of the idea that, you know, I really got that. I know what's going on. And a lot of times there is the mixture 
of the commercialization of this holiday, which, by the way, let me just tell you, is not rooted in Christianity anywhere. And I know there's heard no amens. You're going to shocked at me. Um, it is obvious that Jesus Christ was not born December 25th because shepherds were keeping their flocks by night. And in December in Israel, it's the rainy season just like it is here. And the flocks are not out. Uh, it's cold over there in Israel in December just like it is here. Jesus lived 33 and a half years. We know that historically, we know that he was crucified at Passover on what we call Good Friday, which is rooted in Christian history and Christian tradition. And if you take that back 33 years, okay, then it would be Passover. And if you go back the six months, the half year from March, April, let me just answer a question for you right now. The civil calendar is different than the religious calendar because the religious calendar uh, in Israel is based on lunar months. It's a 28-day calendar. That's the reason why we have... Passover shifting sometimes between March and April, which is why we have Easter shifting. Okay, December 25th was actually a Roman Empire celebration of the rebirth of the sun god Saturnalia. And when the Roman Catholic Church began to rule in what was called the Roman Empire, what they did in so many cultures was they actually absorbed all of the traditions of the various religions and just sort of roll them into Christianity in order to be able to capture more converts. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do has absolutely no rooting whatsoever in Scripture. Now, I don't want to just upset the apple cart and I don't, I don't want to offend anybody. We celebrate Christmas because it's an opportunity to announce to the world the good news that we just read about in Luke chapter 2 that our Savior is born. But now just think with me, God is very deliberate, he's, he's intentional in everything that He does, and if Christ was crucified tied to Passover, Passover was the shedding of the blood, it was the, the sacrificial lamb that was slain, Jesus became the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Let's roll that back 33 years at Passover 33 years before, then roll it back a half year, six months, we're going to end up in between September and October, which happens to be the season of what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the great feasts of celebration on the Hebrew-Israelite calendar. It's the time when everybody in Israel goes to Jerusalem and they dwell in booths. They, 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 they cut the limbs out of the branches and they build these brush arbor type situations where they celebrate for a whole week and it's the feast day of atonement during this period uh, of this overall season of tabernacles. It's three feasts of trumpets and feast day of atonement and then feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths. And the reason that I believe that Jesus was born somewhere in September, October is because this is the high, holiest day of the year. And it's the day, it's the season when shepherds are watching their flocks by night. All of this stuff has been rolled into so, I mean, December 25th is, is the celebration of a number of pagan gods. It just so happened that it's tied to what we call the winter solstice, okay? Um, it is the shortest day of the year and all of a sudden days begin to become longer again, literally tied to December 24th, 25th. And so after the 25th of December, we start to see uh, the sunrise, sunset. The days begin to expand a little bit longer between sunrise and sunset. And certainly we can see that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And there's beautiful symbolism that we can tie to that. But let me just, I want to say one thing before I just share a few moments today. And I'm not teaching 
If you'll notice if in your notes, I have five elements of a story. This is going to be like a literature class for just a few moments. There are five elements of a story. There are the characters, and there's the setting, and there's the plot, there's the conflict, and there's the resolution. And we're going to look for a moment today in this time together in how God, the cosmic author, the author and the finisher of our faith, the author who has written the story of one central character, his name is Jesus Christ, has also written these tiny subplots where he includes people like Jerome and Linda Alford and, and Jeremy and Heather Soto and Felipe and Estella and, and, and Eric and Katie and, and everybody else in the room that we could mention and millions upon millions, billions of people throughout history who've been written into the cosmic script of time and eternity. And I believe that your name is written in that Lamb's book of life and your story is part of the, the bigger, larger cosmic story that we're talking about. But I want to just say this, there's this, all of this pressure and this, I think, a belligerent kind of an attitude in uh, commercial, in stores, whether or not people are going to say Merry Christmas and we're just going, hey, this thing is, you know, really, let's get it back to its Christian roots. And I just want to tell you, the ugly truth of history is there are no Christian roots to all this stuff we're doing. Okay, can, I, can I just be, we're an equal opportunity offender around here and because I am a historian, I believe it's important that we go back and tell the truth. It's important that we recognize that if we win the war for Merry Christmas, will the world still see us as merry Christians? If we go, why can't you say Merry Christmas? <laughs> and in the process of making everybody say Merry Christmas, then we lose our witness and we know we're no longer merry Christians. And, and, and so really, I mean, if somebody says happy holidays to you, remember holiday means holy day. What's wrong with that? Um, and, and, and please, let's move off of this thing about don't X Christ out of Christmas. X is the Greek word chi. It's the first letter in Christ. And it's an abbreviation, just like you would refer to me as M.A. Smith, Michael A. Smith. And it's, it's just it's an abbreviation for Christ in all of the literature of 2,000 years. X is the Greek character chi for Christ. So all this stuff that we get all up in arms about, we're missing the bigger picture. And so this morning I want to talk to you for a few moments about the bigger picture. And that is that this Prince of Peace who has come and the good news that's been announced is the proclamation of the gospel. This is the first announcement of the gospel in reality. The gospel in real time. Because the one that poets and saints and sages and prophets and wise men have looked for for not... Yea, not just centuries but for millennia, has finally shown up in a little bitty obscure town in the region of Judea, a little city called Bethlehem that the prophet Micah said would be prince among the other regions of the people of God. The characters that we're talking about here are all pointing to and longing for the the, the final arrival and the advent as we talk about, the first advent of this Messiah, this Christos, Greek word, this anointed one, this, this God-man, this I give you a sign and you I tell, the, the virgin shall conceive and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us and the angel, the annunciator, Gabriel came and said that to Mary and said that to Joseph and we've preached the hope of the prophets and the whole Old Covenant. And Jeremy did an amazing job. And Chip Dealer was here the next week and he talked to us about the joy that's come and, and, and the, the virgin's womb. And Mary who had to say out of her own mouth, be it unto me according to your word. 
and how that's a picture of salvation when it comes to your heart and to mine. That God touches and apprehends and chooses and picks us. Aren't you thankful that in God's cosmic red rover, you're not the one that's always left out? He's saying, red rover, red rover, send. And you put in your name right there. Send Mike Boatman right over. There was a moment in time when God the Father spoke through eternity and He said, red rover, red rover, send Matt right over. And it was the time when Christ came into Matt's heart and Matt had to say like Mary did, be it unto me according to your word. And you know, there aren't any that are left out. It's amazing how God's love is for the whole world, for the whole earth. And His call is the gospel, that is, the good news that this day is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But the characters that we're looking at, we've seen multiplied thousands of people. It begins in a garden. The setting is in the garden. The setting is a garden where everything is perfect. The setting is a place where... Amazingly enough, we have a perfect man and a perfect woman and they bear children and somehow in that perfect setting we have a talking snake that brings temptation. And you remember the story. We're not going to rehearse that because it's one of multitudes of little small stories that contribute to and make up the bigger story because every one of the little stories is pointing to the bigger story. The, the meta-narrative, as we look at this and divide it theologically, are there are four great big topics of God in creation and then man's response in the fall. And then God sends the redeeming one, His Yeshua, Mashiach. God is salvation, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then man responds in partnership with God in restoration of the whole earth. So it's creation, God acts. It's fall, man acts. It's redemption, God acts. It's restoration, man and God act together in partnership. And so we're looking at this amazing story that would appear to be climaxing in this point. We still have glory to God in the highest. I'm already into five elements of the story. Put up the words for me if you would, please. My five elements, let's just go through them. The first one are the characters. So the characters that we're talking about are, are believing saints through the ages. There is, there is a horrible mistake that happens in the garden. It was an intentional high treason of a man and a woman who turned against God and chose themselves to be their own source of knowledge and light and strength rather than looking to God and to obey. They disobeyed and it was high treason and God cast them out. And yet in that moment, in that spot and on that place, God made a promise to Adam's race and He said that the seed of the woman would bruise the seed, the head of the seed of the serpent. And so the story begins. We've, we've got these amazing characters where, where God doesn't give up on man, but He taps uh, an, an, an unsuspecting guy on the shoulder one day who's over worshiping the moon in an area called Ur of the Chaldees. It's Babylon. It's modern day Iraq. Abraham's not a Jew. He's an Iraqi. But God does a transformation in his heart and he believes in the Lord and he becomes this whole new creation and he changes and God takes a man and he builds a family and the family becomes a nation and the nation is now uh, 12 sons of Israel and Israel becomes the father of a whole nation of 12 tribes. Very different but all one together. Covenant people of God. Israel and God takes a man and makes a family and takes the family and makes a nation. God takes that nation and he goes looking for another family and it's the family of the house of David and God 
takes this thing like a sieve and brings it down to Abraham and expands it through Isaac and then brings it back down again into the line of David so that Abraham and David would be the two heirs. God made crazy promises to two old dudes. He promised Abraham that as far as his eye could see that God would give him the land. And he promised David that he would always have a seed that would sit on the throne. So the promise to God, to to Abraham, is the earth. The promise to David is the throne and that's the right to rule it. And guess what? Jesus Christ is the heir of both of those two. The earth is the Lord's and the throne is Jesus Christ's rightful place to sit. And when we see this, we see this through this amazing genealogy in in Joseph's side in Matthew 1 and Mary's side in Luke 2 and they're both tied back up through God weaving the scarlet thread and the cord of redemption through these amazing families. And there's some in-laws and there's some outlaws and God even puts Rahab the harlot... (gasps) God puts a hoe that's been redeemed into the mix and He turns her life around and He transforms her and He does something in an unusual, extraordinary matter and actually in a very ordinary, just everyday kind of a cheap, what everybody else would would think has no value whatsoever. God said that life has value and He redeemed the dignity of a woman who was willing to risk her life so that a couple of spies, Joshua and Caleb could go in and possess the land. And here at this point, their story is somehow woven into this bigger picture because Joshua becomes the guy who invades the land. He's the picture of our heavenly Joshua who invades our land and kills the giants in us and who takes down the walled cities in us. And Jesus literally is the same name in Hebrew as Joshua. It's amazing how all of these stories are woven together and these characters become part of this. The settings change. It's... It's a garden and it becomes a city in Revelation and it's a nation that rolls into a place so that they can have something to eat and a Pharaoh gets forgetful and he enslaves millions of Hebrews and God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. Moses is another prophetic picture, a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18, 18, Moses said himself that God would raise up a prophet like unto Moses and that prophet is Jesus. He is the federal head of the new covenant. Moses is the federal head of the old covenant. Moses delivered the children of Israel by the blood, the water of Egypt, the the blood, the water, and the spirit out of Egypt through the wilderness into the land. Jesus Christ is the federal head of the new covenant. He has delivered us, the, the, the people of God, the church of the living God, the chosen before the foundation of the world, by the shed blood, through the washing of the water, and by the infilling of the Spirit. Same thing. God does it just in a new, fresh, internal kind of way. It's not an external thing anymore. But the characters are all pointing to a bigger story, and the plot is all about the wrestling between good and evil. Good and evil for generations. And God doesn't seem to be in a hurry. You know, everybody expects the prophecy comes and Eve is literally thinking that the next son that's going to be born into her family will be the one who will bruise the head of the serpent. But it's not Eve's next son, but it's Eve's greater son that's going to be thousands of years in the process because God is going to weave this eternal story where history will literally become His story at the unveiling of a God who behind the scenes who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing and all-present and He is all in all and He is sending His uniquely begotten Son not on the back of a white horse, not with a sword in His hand, but down to the manger in a, little Beth, in a little Bethlehem stall, a horse stall, where an owner of an inn and an innkeeper says, I don't have any room for you, but 
There's a place where the animals are out back if you want to go out there and have the baby. God even used the tyrant of the government at the time, the Roman Empire, Augustus Caesar, who all of a sudden now the blue just woke up one day and decided he was going to have a census across the whole Roman Empire. And he declared and decreed that, and obviously Israel is part of the Roman Empire. This is where the whole tax farmer system has come from. All the tax collectors are actually businessmen who have sold themselves out to the Roman Empire in order to be able to jack up the prices. It's like a crooked IRS guy. Tax farming system was the Roman Empire way of being able to maintain and keep all of their structure and building the roads and the military control and might. And so a little 15-year-old girl who's pregnant and not yet fully married is carrying the seed of God. The angel of the Lord says, This holy thing which shall be born of thee will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of the Highest. El Elyon is his name. She gets on the back of a donkey and Joseph rides with her and they make the trek across Israel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The baby's born in Bethlehem and we have the announcement of these additional characters. Here we go. We see shepherds in the field and we see angels and heavenly hosts and are singing, Gloria. I don't think the angels sang that, but it's kind of a nice thought. And so they're singing, In excelsis Deo, in the excellence and the highest of God's praises. And we see everything unfolding here. Characters. And the setting, setting's next. Setting is changing. It's moving around. It's from the struggle between a crazy, wimpy king and an overarching, ruling, mad woman. It's, a, it's an Ahab and a Jezebel and it's an Elijah. And it shifts 400 years of the intertestamental period of quiet and everybody's going, is God even still alive? Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, there appears this strangely dressed prophet from out there in the wilderness who's dressed in leather and he's eating locusts and wild honey and his name is John the Baptist and he keeps talking about the return or the coming of the Lord and the glory of the Lord will appear. God's using his story to weave his story into the bigger story of one that's coming. We have angels that announce and we have a young couple, a Joseph and a Mary and they head to Bethlehem and they have the baby and the angels sing and they announce and here come the shepherds. All the while this is going on we have some psychics, some wise men, some astrologers. This is, this is Dion Warwick and 1-800-PSYCHIC, folks. These wise men that you, know, that you studied in your manger scene. Matthew chapter 2, just move on through the setting. Let's get to the plot here and we're going to look to the, for the conflict here in just a second. And I want you to see what's going on in this amazing story because throughout history there has always been this attempt to squash the seed of God. Go back to the setting in the garden and we have a lying snake. But God shows up in that spot, walks in the cool of the day and He says the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent's seed. And for ages and generations and every time, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, God is laying a fresh line with a prophet that will rise up with a new perspective and a, and a revelation and another line that will add a different picture 
until finally this whole thing comes into complete focus. Nobody had a complete view of what this Messiah was going to do, how he was going to be, what he was going to look like. Every generation knew that something was coming, but they didn't know what he was going to do when he got here. And when he did show up, it was outside of the realm of the expectation of the leading knowledge people of the day. All the theologians were fooled. They loved Jesus as long as he was a prophecy, and when he showed up, they couldn't see him. Because he came away they didn't expect. All along the way, the seed has been fought. There was the time when Pharaoh basically said, I don't want you to let any boy babies be born because this people will rise up and they will see themselves set free. And at the very time that God would choose to raise up the deliverer Moses, one who's going to, his story points to the story of the deliverer Jesus. It was decreed by the government and it was government sanctioned. It was government driven that there would be the abolition, the abortion, the infanticide of all of the Israelite baby boys and they would sacrifice them into the Nile River. But yet in the midst of the government that's trying to keep and protect itself from the governor who's coming, (laughs) I love it. In the, in the attempt to, to try and destroy the seed, God had a way and He put a dream in the heart of a little mama who, who built a little tiny ark just big enough for a little baby boy and she pitched it with pitch and she sent it out into the Nile and God caused the deliverer that Pharaoh was trying to be killed to be raised up and trained and educated and fed from Pharaoh's own table. Now get you some of that, devil. What happened with Moses is going to happen again with Jesus because about the time Jesus is born and they're in Bethlehem, there's a star that appears in the east and magi from the east, wise men, astrologers that are following stars begin the trek. Matthew chapter 2 tells us this amazing story and it's the conflict that this little bitty baby boy who's not done anything to anybody but evidently he is a threat to the current king who is Herod the Tetrarch who is on the throne as an under-governor of the Roman Empire and he is ruling the people Israel as sort of a hybrid, a half-breed, a mongrel on the throne but he still has enough Jewish blood in him that he can still be called a Jew. The wise men visit Herod. This is a two-year process. I don't want to offend you, but the the camels and the wise men don't belong at your manger scene because they didn't show up at the manger. If you read Matthew chapter 2, you'll find the story where the wise men show up in Herod's court, in his palace, and Herod was a megalomaniac. He was a phenomenal architect, engineer, built these, these, these amazing caverns and fortresses and Masada and and he has communication systems literally with pigeons that fly 45 minutes one way back and forth from Jerusalem out to the, the site of the great fortress that he built. And he built Caesarea and Caesarea Philippi. And he's got all these amazing palaces. Matter of fact, to, to this day, there is an amphitheater still at that place where rock concerts are held. I've been there to that very spot. I've been to, I've been to the place where Paul stood in front of Herod Agrippa where he stood and, and there was this argument in terms of uh, what was going to be concerning the resurrection. The first Herod that we're talking about back here, the one who actually makes the decree once he hears the wise men, he says, what time did this star appear? And where is the prophecy that says where this Messiah is going to be born? Because they come to Herod and they say, 
we've come to worship him who is the king of the Jews. And, and you know, Herod's thinking, now, wait a minute. They ain't but one king of the Jews, and I'm the king of the Jews. What do you mean you've come to worship the king of the Jews? And so the wise men show up, and they're telling Herod the story of the prophets and weaving all of this amazing stuff together in the prophecy. And they land over there in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they talk about Bethlehem of Judea. And he says, when did the star appear? And the scripture tells us that Herod then issued a decree that all in Ramah, and that whole region over there, that all of the baby boys, two years and under, according to the time which the Magi said that the star had appeared. So they've been traveling for two years. Okay, So they leave Herod, and when they leave Herod, they follow the star, and they end up at the house in Nazareth. Now read your Bible, Matthew chapter 2, says they came into the house and they saw the young child. It's a different Greek word than the babe in the manger. It's a different Greek word. It's house. It's not the manger stall. So the wise men showed up when Jesus is about two years old and they bring him gifts, gold and myrrh and frankincense of his divinity and his suffering and the awesome presence of God, the praise that's going to come out of his life. The gold is the divinity. The myrrh is his suffering. The frankincense is the praise of God that his life is going to be. You see the word incense in frankincense. Those three gifts have a very significant place. We don't know if there were three wise men or not. That's just sort of tradition. And a song that we sing, We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel so far. Some folks say, well, one each gave gold, one gave myrrh, one gave frankincense. And so we sort of surmise from that that there were three, but we don't know how many there were. Does it matter? No. Now, you go ahead and stick your camels and your wise men up at the manger. doesn't matter. But just make sure that you realize that if you're going to teach the children the story, go ahead and add that little extra detail. We always put the wise men and the camels across the room at our house. Whatever. That's just, I'm just picky, so... But they tried to kill the seed again. Herod tries to kill all the babies and there's weeping and lament throughout Ramah because all the two-year-old baby boys have been slain. But the amazing thing is is that Jesus is not even in that area. He's back home at Nazareth and Herod's been fooled. And when the wise men leave, the Bible says they went home a different way. Now i got to tell you what that means. When you meet Jesus Christ, when you bow before Him, you can't go back home the same way you were. You can't go back the same way that you came. You're going to take a different route and you're going to walk a different way and you're going to live a different lifestyle and you're going to have a different path. Herod thinks he's killing the seed just like Pharaoh thought he was killing the seed. And I'm going to tell you, come on somebody, nothing can stop the seed because God's got this thing just like he's got your life and he's planted a living hope. Now I'm going to preach a little bit this morning even though I've been trying to tell a little bit of a story because when you get down to the end of this thing, what looks like the climax and the, peace, the Prince of Peace has finally come, it's actually the opening of a whole new story. It's a fresh new beginning. The climax has become a whole new beginning. And what I want you to see, the French use a literary term called denouement. Say that with me. Denouement. See, now you need to tell somebody you know a little French. Denouement. Denouement is this concept of the resolution where all the strands get tied together, all the characters are clearly finally portrayed and everything that's been hidden in the past and all the villains are revealed and everything is now wrapped up into a nice final package. 
We haven't seen that yet. We saw the climax of the story of the ages of the gospel being announced that the king is here and the prince of peace has come and now shalom, the the wholeness of God can be a part of our lives because the prince of peace has come into the world to bring peace. I love the words that Katie shared this morning. Peace is a cherished hope and when enough people have that cherished hope, then peace that begins in my individual heart can come into my family and it can spread from my family into my neighborhood and from my neighborhood into my city. And we can see the delta that is gripped in poverty and ignorance and slavery to sin. We can see the peace of God and the shalom of God move out. What began in a little manger stall can begin to move through this area and invade this place. And God who has not given up on the United States of America or China or Russia or Mongolia or anywhere else around the world can cause revival and restoration and reformation to come in every generation the way He always has throughout Christian history. So I'm not ready to just say it's all over with, it's going to hell in the handbasket because this one that I'm talking about is sitting on the throne and He's ruling in the kingdoms of men. The resolution, the resolution is this. I have a scripture that I want you to see this morning. He's a baby and he's taken in on the eighth day to be circumcised and to have his name prophetically pronounced before the elders of Israel. There was an old prophet who was older than 80 years old and he had been waiting, the Bible says, for the consolation of Israel. And God promised him, God had made Simeon a promise. His name means hearing. Simeon means hearing. Simeon was one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Simeon, he who hears. And I'm going to tell you one thing, when I'm going through hell, the one thing I can be thankful for is that I have an ear to hear what God can say and lead and direct and guide me. And Simeon is standing there and this is the amazing thing. He's standing in one age and he's holding another age in his arms. (laughs) He's holding the end of the ages in his arms. And he rises up and he speaks words prophetically of blessing. And he says, And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Don't don't advance the slide. I want to stop right there. Look at the strange order of these words. The fall and the rising again. Now you don't ever hear that. It's the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbons. It's the rise and the fall of the Third Reich. But look at what it says. He's appointed for the fall and the rising again, the the King James says, the rising again of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Go ahead and advance the slide, please. And he's speaking to Mary now and he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now this is what I want to say to you in the close this morning. This message right here, that fall and the rising again, it's the picture of one of the names of Jesus. He is called a stumbling block and a rock of offense. (coughs) Psalm 118, 1 Peter 2, Behold, the book of Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone who is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And the chief priest stumbled at this great stone in Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you why he's been appointed for the fall and the rising again of many. Because 
It's the preaching of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1, that says is an offense. It is the scandalon. It is the stumbling block. It is, a, it is something that causes us to stumble and fall down. And only when we fall down at the foot of the cross, it is only at that place where we embrace who He is and we see who He's made us to be. And in that, He rises, He raises us up again as a whole new kind of creation to be a citizen of Israel, of the commonwealth of the people of God. So it's only as every individual falls at the cross and then at the the scandalon, at the scandalous idea of a king who would be crucified, a king who would have every kind of violence portrayed against him when the world is screaming, why don't you stand up and defend yourself? Why don't you take the whip and the scourge? And why don't you speak words and kill everyone? But yet he chose to take the way of peace because he is the prince of peace. And because he is the prince of peace, he can reconcile your broken family and your broken heart and your broken body and your broken life. And the issue is, can you fall before Him so that He can cause you to rise again? Can you lay down the old life and let it die and let it fall into the grave so that He can cause you to be raised up again as a whole new creation? Isn't it amazing how God sets up things? He will offend your mind in order to reveal the thoughts of your heart. That's what that scripture just said right there. The stuff you're going through right now, don't get caught up in the offense of the moment. I have stuff right now that I could be so offended over. And I'm just determining to forget the past and look to the future. And not let that thing trap me under the trap of the scandal on. And and be out of the game where the coach says, hit the showers, you got a bad attitude, I can't deal with it. No, Lord, wash over me. Lord, forgive me. And like Jesus, I want to be able to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The people who hurt, the people who wound, the people who just inadvertently do what they do, and sometimes even non-intentionally. This morning as I close this message, and I've been a little longer than I intended, but I've told you a story, and I've tried to help you see that this thing is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. And, and the idea of somebody telling you, don't open the Word and try to read yourself into it, let me tell you, you're all over that thing, because he did this for himself first, but then he did this for you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And your story, your line, is a little bitty couple of lines in a script that lasts from one eternity to the next. But you have, hey, it may be a bit part, but I'm going to tell you, my 80 years may be but a breath, but I'm going to play my part. I'm going to do what God's called me to do. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me this morning? He, the Prince of Peace came, and the climax of this story is a whole new beginning. This, we're, we're literally like... Like that, that Tolkien in the trilogy of the, the, the Lord of the Rings and the fellowship and the return of the king. And we're, we're all in the fellowship of the ring right now. And we're waiting on the return of the king. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me? And God's stirring some stuff up. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of what he's doing. And I just want to say this to you today. It's not about just celebrating historical fact of a little baby that got laid in a manger because there was no room in the end. But it, it comes down to the conflict and the resolution in your life. If you're going to submit to the script and be part of the story and the author that's writing you into this story, it's going to be about not is there room in the end, but it's going to be is there room for him in your heart. I beg you this morning, I beg you in this place, 
to see this amazing story and this amazing grace of the goodness of God that he's poured out to men, the revelation of his kingdom, deliverance from sin, of the word of the Lord that has come from the past, of the word of God that he said that would forever last, and, and heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will continue to hear the word of the Lord and let his son live in you. I'm I'm just rolling on the spot. This is not a poem I've written. That's just rolling up out of me right now. Your choice is right now in this place. God made the chess move. It's your move. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In the name of Jesus, God help you.